Good morning, everyone. I want to start out with a pocket dial story. We all love those stories, don't we? And we've all... Um, how many have done a pocket dial? Uh, how many of you have received a pocket dial, picked up the phone, you hear a conversation on the other end, they have no idea they've called you, but you can hear everything they're saying, um, and you hung up right away when that happened, right? <laughs> so a couple of weeks ago, a couple of Tuesdays ago, um, I had a plumber coming from Jeremy Weber's company, um, Trimec, I believe it is. No, uh, is, is Jeremy here? Where is he? Oh, there, you're, you're not in your usual pew. <coughs> so he and I had been texting about his plumber coming, and after the plumber had arrived and uh, the work was underway, pulled out my phone, I'd had my ringer off and realized, oh, Jeremy's tried to call me. And as I looked closer at my phone, I realized uh, he had said, you, you pocket, you, you, maybe you pocket called me. <clears throat> and as I looked closer at my phone, I realized I had pocket texted him an emoji. And I'm going to show you the emoji that I pocket texted. <clears throat> and it's actually better than that because it was animated and the hearts were bubbling up between. <clears throat> so I felt I should publicly apologize to Judy. And you see uh, Jeremy's so gracious, his text back to me. I noticed I missed a call from you. I see you sent me a nice emoji. <laughs> Glad you liked it, Jeremy. <clears throat> so what does the pocket text story have to do with my sermon? Absolutely nothing. Uh, but I had to get that off my chest. Actually, uh, it does have something to do with my sermon today because we're gonna talk today about telling our story. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who've had the experience of coming to know Jesus and, and being saved, as the Bible describes, becoming born again, becoming a follower of Jesus, there's a story in that for each of us. And as we think about the good news, the good news message of the Bible and the fact that as followers of Jesus, it's actually our job to share this good news message with others, what I want us to see today is that our story uh, has a powerful part to play in that. Why is that? I wonder if you've ever noticed how powerful stories are. Have you ever been in a Tim Hortons, you're having a coffee with a friend, and a couple of tables over, someone, some stranger starts to tell a story? And you can hear every, every detail, and the plot's unfolding, and you're, you're, you're trying to talk to your friend, but you're totally listening to the story because, well, it's a story. I've noticed as a preacher that, uh, and it's often when I'm not preaching, when someone else is preaching, uh, but when the preacher moves from uh, some theological point and then he illustrates the point with a story, what I've noticed is everyone's head raises. I, I don't know if they weren't listening before, if they were sleeping, but when the story begins, everyone, uh, everyone gives their attention. There's something about stories that grip us as human beings. It's part of our makeup. And what I want us to see about that when we think about the Christian faith, God understands this truth, that as human beings we are gripped by stories. And what's interesting is that the way God presents his message to us in the Bible, he does it as one grand story. We need to understand this about the Bible. There's 66 books in the Bible, 
Uh, they were written over a period of 2,000 years by uh, over 40 different authors. But what's amazing about the Bible, and one of the reasons that I believe the Bible is God's word and God's truth, is because in spite of all of that, it tells one story. This is a picture that I like to use to illustrate the story of the Bible, and it kind of goes in a counterclockwise direction, but it begins at the top with God, three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who then creates the world and the universe, and then he creates human beings and places them as the caretakers over his universe, but then almost immediately they raise their fist against God in defiance. They, they sin against him and reject him, which results in that chasm that you see heading down to the bottom corner, uh, this separation between God and humanity, and this brokenness of our world. Do you ever, did you ever realize that the brokenness of our world and wars and disease and all of these things are directly related to the fact that as human beings, as the caretakers of God's world, we raised our fist against him and we got the kind of world we wanted. We didn't want to have a world in which God's ways ruled. We wanted a world in which we ruled and the brokenness of our world is a, a direct result of that. Then you come to the bottom and the Star of David represents the nation of Israel. The Old Testament tells a story of how God seeking to rescue us and rescue his world from this brokenness of sin. He takes a man named Abraham and establishes a nation from him, the nation of Israel, and he uh, sets up kings over that nation. He gives that nation laws and, and scripture to guide them and yet even though God intervenes and rescues them and teaches them and saves them over and over, ultimately they reject their own God again and again until finally, uh, as a Jewish man, the offspring of the nation of Israel, Jesus comes, Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises that someday a king is gonna come and save God's people, and that is Jesus. And his salvation didn't come from military might, but from a cross where he gives his life, lays down his life as a sin sacrifice so that people like us, sinners like us, can be rescued and saved. And because of that act, we have this huge body of people, which is God's people. We call it sometimes the church. And we're in this age now where the church is being populated throughout the world. People are coming to Jesus and following him. But then we know from scripture at the end of time there's gonna be a final judgment over the sin of this world. And after that time there's gonna be a new creation represented by that golden city. This is the story of the Bible. We need to understand the whole story of the Bible in order to understand each part of the Bible. But my point here is that God uses story to grip our hearts and we need to be gripped by this story of the whole Bible. Think about this, history. Notice the connection between the word history and story. In our day of sophistication, we would be taught to believe that history is random, that there is no story or plot line to history, that it's just chaos. And yet we believe that God has, is, in, is the manager over history. He sits on a throne over all of history and we are steadily marching toward the conclusion of the story of all history. And then this point that we want to emphasize today, that you, personally, you have a story, a life journey. We've illustrated it in this picture on the wall here, our discipleship path. 
each of these people representing probably people in this room on the far left, the person who is turned away from the cross, is not interested in God or in Jesus, doesn't even recognize that Jesus loves them, that Jesus is real, that he has a plan for them. But then some of us here today are looking to the cross. We're, we've seen something in Jesus and in the good news message that had attracted us and we're, we're asking questions and we're wanting to know more about that. And then there's people to the right of the cross who've come to faith in Jesus. They've become followers of Jesus, but we're still on this journey of growing and being transformed and following Jesus and becoming more like him. What I want us to understand is that our story, our story has power to share this good news message with other people. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever recognized that? It's a biblical principle, and I want to see it today in a story from Mark chapter 5. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible, I think, in front of you. So if you uh, can find the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, and then the fifth chapter, and we're going to start reading in verse 1. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. This is a story from the life of Jesus. And in verse 1, we begin here to read about Jesus and his Disciples. It says they, it's referring to Jesus and his disciples. It says, they went across the lake, that's the Sea of Galilee, to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him night and day among the tombs, and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now I recognize in sharing and reading this story this morning that this man that Jesus meets initially raises some questions for us in our time and in our culture, because here we read of a man, it says, that has an impure spirit. Later we're gonna read this, the evil spirit that's residing in this man is actually many spirits residing in this man. And so in our time, in our day and age, this idea of demon possession, being possessed by the devil, is not one that we think about often. It's not one perhaps that many of us would even believe to be true. We're sophisticated. We don't see this. And maybe we ask ourselves, why don't we see this today? Why don't we see evidence of this kind of issue? Why doesn't the devil still work this way in our time? And I would suggest to you, one of the big reasons we don't see this as often uh, vividly in our culture and time is that the devil's primary work in our culture is to convince us that we are so sophisticated that there's no need for God. Not only do we not believe in demons and devils, we don't even believe in God. And you think about how the devil in Western society and culture has so permeated this thought that there is no God, and so atheism is truth, or agnosticism uh, is acceptable, because how can we even know? But I mean, there doesn't seem to be evidence for God. Science has trumped any notion of the supernatural. That is what the devil has done. So when it comes to the devil's work personally in our lives, the way he's working in this man's life, it's an undercover operation. Do you understand that? He's not gonna come out and do this openly the way he did in Bible times because it would actually break this, 
this deception that he's created in our culture that there is no supernatural. There is no God. There is no spiritual. Now, does the devil still work in this way in our time? I believe he certainly can. But I want to think about the issues in this man's life and show you that I, I believe the devil is absolutely at work in our time. So let me, let me show you three aspects of this man's life, this man with the impure spirit. Verse 2 says, the end of the verse says, he came from the tombs to meet him. And then verse 3, this man lived in the tombs. Well, that's a little weird, isn't it? He lived in a graveyard. What does that tell us? Well, one of the things we know about the devil, the Bible tells us that he's here to steal and to kill and to destroy. The devil has a preoccupation with death and whenever he might take the opportunity, he loves when human beings die, especially when they die apart from God. He loves to see human beings taking another human being's life. I would say that the devil is obsessed with death and you say, well, we're so sophisticated, we're, we're not like that. But is that true? Is there an aspect in which our culture lives among the tombs? If you're into the, all the rage of the superhero movies of our time, the average superhero movie, you will witness on screen, looking every bit as vivid and real as could be, 50 to 100 deaths in the average superhero movie. You think, oh, I hadn't really thought about that because lots of us watch those movies. But we haven't even thought about the reality that we're witnessing the death of human beings in, in full color. Consider this, and I want to share some things that I know are controversial in our time, but I, I feel led to share them anyway. As followers of Jesus, we believe that abortion is the death of an unborn human child. And in our nation annually, there are 80 to 100,000 abortions. We believe deaths. Medically assisted death is on the rise in Canada. There are over 10,000 medically assisted deaths, and I know this touches some of us and some of our families. Over 10,000 medically assisted deaths in Canada in 2021, over 3% of all the deaths in our country were, and I'm gonna say it this way, were at the hand of a doctor. Our society is living among the tombs. And we didn't even realize it. And we do this in the name of being sophisticated and secular and wise. And yet we love and even promote death. The next thing we read about this man is that they tried to chain him. He was a wild man. He was possessed by demons. But no one could bind him, it says in verse 3. Not even with a chain, for he had often chained, been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Whew, glad we don't have people like that in our culture. But let me help us think about it this way. How has our culture thrown off restraint? God has given us his law, I believe, his word, to create boundaries around human society. Even in the Old Testament, some of the laws we might read, even, even the Ten Commandments, we, we might read and wonder why God 
you know, restrained and restricted freedoms from human beings? Why did he put laws and rules around human behavior? Well, we know that he did that for our good. In a world that had become sinful and rebellious, God created laws to create safety and boundaries around us so that we wouldn't harm one another or ourselves. And we live in a time now when our culture, in the name of being sophisticated and intelligent and educated, is throwing off every restraint that God's word would place upon human beings. Obviously, the definition of marriage. And again, I know this is controversial. I know this affects some of us individually or as families. But God is the one who defines what marriage is. God is the one who instituted marriage. Why is it every culture of the world has marriage? Because it goes all the way back to the very first human beings in which God created one man and one woman, set them into a covenant relationship that was meant to be monogamous and for life. And our culture has thrown off that restraint. Definition of gender has changed from what it used to mean to be biologically male or biologically female. Now the definition has had to change because our society has said in our sophistication, in our education, we now know that gender is only a social construct. And if you think about the fact that there is a God who makes us a creator God, to abandon the gender that he assigns is to abandon him and to reject his creative authority over us. We talk about sexual addictions, which don't just permeate our world, but even in our churches. Because in our culture, we've thrown off all the restraints. Finally, we read of this man. Verse five, it says, night and day among the tombs. And in the hills, he would cry out. And cut himself with stones and we say we're so sophisticated we're so educated we've gone so far beyond this type of lifestyle and yet we are living in a time and in a society and I want to share these things with concern and with humility and with compassion why are our cities and even our small towns filled with homeless encampments, with people whose lives are desperate, caught in addiction, mental health. Why is that happening and do we care? 21% of Canadians will experience some substance addiction in their lives. We consider, especially since the time of COVID, the reality of a mental health crisis among us in which 50% of us human beings at some point in our life we will find ourselves dealing with mental health and I am among that number. And the rise, the proliferation of mental health challenges among our young people including self-harm. devil is alive and well in our time and I share these things not in judgment because I have been touched by these things 
This is why we need the good news. This is why the people that we meet, the people that live in those tents in Kitchener, the the people that we work with and go to school with, the people that we live with in our homes need the good news because the devil has been alive and well and has created absolute destruction in our society and we've been blind to it because we think we are so sophisticated. So we read about this man with his demon possession and let's not think for a moment that we can't relate. We can. But I'm so glad Jesus came. Because in verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, this is the demons within the man, ran and fell on, uh, on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus? This is the demons talking. Uh, Son of the most high God, in God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? Again, speaking to the demon Possessing the man, and the, uh, the demon's reply is, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. And then we read this strange detail. And those of us who've grown up with a story, if you've grown up in Sunday school, if you had this one on flannel graph, I'm trying to remember how this one looked when I was a kid in the flannel graph, you know. The story turns to a herd of pigs in verse 11. A herd of pigs feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons beg Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, haven't checked the pig prices lately, but that's... That's a lot of money. They rushed down the steep bank into the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and were drowned. And those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, notice, they saw the man who'd been possessed by the legion. Remember, this is the man that lived in the tombs. They would have all known about him. This is the man that they had tried to chain and subdue with shackles. He broke those chains. This is a man who had, I assume, terrorized them and their towns. And in verse 15, when they came to see Jesus, they saw the man who had been, notice past tense, had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there dressed and in his right mind. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then perhaps the most shocking detail, the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. There's a few things that I want us to learn from this story. The most important one is at the very heart of our message as followers of Jesus, and that is that Jesus saves. It's not just a cliche for us, it's, it's our whole world. But Jesus saves people like this demon-possessed man, and I can stand and testify to the fact that Jesus 
can save someone like me. And many of you can testify that Jesus has saved people like you. And what has he saved us from? He has saved us from our sin. We've come to him and recognized that we've, we've broken God's laws and we've sinned against him. We did exactly the same as the first human beings did. We raised our fist against God. We went our own way and Jesus comes to save people like us to forgive and cleanse us from our sin. But then his salvation extends beyond just getting some kind of a forgiveness ticket. And what Jesus does is he begins to transform our lives, doesn't he? Just like he transformed this man's life, he is in the process, and it is a process, it is a journey of transforming us, of rescuing us from what we used to be and transforming us into what we ultimately will be, which is people who are just like Jesus. And so that is the good news story here. I'm so glad the story is in the Bible, but it's like so many others, where Jesus intervenes in a person's life and he saves them. Has it happened to you? Well, that's the first important point of the story. The second point I want us to see in this story is that salvation is the death of the old self. Now, you, if, you, if you come to me after and say, can you explain that thing with the pigs and why did the demons want to go in the pigs and why did Jesus send them into the pigs and why did the pigs uh, topple down the hill and drown? I don't have an answer for any of that. Sorry. But here's the illustration that I see in it is that salvation always requires a death. Did you know that? Certainly salvation through Jesus required his death. There's no way for any of us to find salvation or forgiveness or transformation apart from Jesus. We believe there is no hope in finding that in any religion, but only in a person, the person of Jesus. We, we're very exclusive and politically incorrect about that, aren't we? It's just Jesus who can save people like us. His death was required, but there's also the death of us in an interesting way. In fact, Scripture says about that, Paul talked about that, the Apostle Paul in Romans and then in, and then in Philippians and I believe in Galatians, he talked about how when we have come to Jesus, we were crucified with him. It's like we were there on the cross. It's like our sins were nailed there. Of course, Jesus was there in our place, but it requires the death of the old self. And that's what I see in the story of the pigs. The demons who terrorized and destroyed this man's life, the sin, the brokenness that had ruined his life now topples into the sea and drowns. It's a picture to me of this reality that salvation always requires the death of the old self. It is why we read in scripture over and over and over that one of the human responses that leads to salvation is something called repentance. I know as a church, we believe strongly that salvation comes through faith alone. I can agree with that. But repent is, repentance is one of those things that demonstrates that we believe. Repentance is a turning away from my old life, from my old direction, from my old way of thinking, from my old behavior. I come to Jesus because I've recognized that that's sinful. It's against God, it's broken. So I turn away from that, and when I turn, I find Jesus. So repentance is turning away from what I used to be and what I used to do, what I used to think, and I turn toward Jesus, and that's why we talk about being followers of Jesus. That's what, that's what saving faith does. 
Saving faith helps me see what I used to be and turn from it and turn to Jesus. And saving faith leads me to say, Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to follow you. So I can agree, scripture is so clear that it's only by faith. It's not by religious duty or deeds or works that we are saved. But faith first requires this turning from what I used to do and be and turning to the object of my faith, which is Jesus. Salvation is always the death of the old self. I once sat in a Tim Hortons with a man who had reached out to me and said, I gotta get saved. He even used that kind of language. He had uh, been to church. He had married a woman who was raised in a Christian home. And even though he'd never chosen previously in his life to follow Jesus, at this moment he was saying, I, I, I gotta talk to you, I, I wanna get saved. So I knew about this man and I knew about his life and some of his habits and knew about the uh, destruction that he'd caused in his marriage and in his family. So as I listened to him share this with some excitement, I raised this issue. And I reminded him that if he is truly coming to Jesus, he's turning away from his old life. And I said, if you are gonna follow Jesus, you realize what this means is you can't go out all weekend, every weekend, and gamble away your modest resources. You can't do that anymore. You're turning from that. You're turning to Jesus. You know what? That was the end of the conversation. Nope. Wasn't gonna turn away from that. And that illustrates the very thing that scripture demands is that we would repent. And I know that God is, after we come to Jesus, the Lord over time reveals other things that we didn't realize we needed to repent of, but as God reveals those things to us, we will repent, we turn. But there is this need to turn from the old life initially in coming to faith in Jesus. We won't understand all the ways that we've broken God's law. God will reveal those things. But to the degree that we understand that we were sinners, we turn from that sin and we turn to Jesus. There's the death of the old self. And then there's the surrendering to Jesus. Illustrated so beautifully at the end of the story. Verse 17, the people plead with Jesus to leave. So shocking when they so vividly could see the reality of what Jesus did. By the way, do you, do you know why they asked Jesus to leave? Because economics was more important than the rescue of human beings. That's why they asked him to leave. We can't afford to have you here, Jesus. Doesn't matter how many people you save and rescue, we can't afford it. It's the very thing that keeps many people in our day from following Jesus. So they plead with Jesus to leave, and in verse 18, Jesus is getting into the boat, and the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. I mean, it's this. It's the man understanding that this Jesus who had saved him now needs to be the, the focal point of his life, the direction of his life. He's saying, I will go with you. I, I want to I want to know you. I want to serve you. That's what the man is saying when he begs to go with him. So this man understood something of what genuine salvation is and what it always does. And so if we're a person who says, Well, I came to Jesus for forgiveness, but I have no interest in following Jesus, then chances are your heart actually hasn't yet been transformed. It's not too late. 
which you actually need to turn from a life, a selfish life that says, I want to live for myself, I want to live for my money, I want to live for my pleasure. If you're truly saved, if you've truly come to Jesus for forgiveness, you'll recognize that that direction, that life, that was actually idolatry. I was worshiping something other than Jesus, other than God. Genuine salvation results in, and I know it, it's a transformation process. We're not going to be all there right at the start. But there is a surrendering to Jesus that happens when we trust in him. And again, we can understand that salvation is by faith. How is that faith illustrated in our lives? It's that we trust our lives to Jesus well, how did Jesus respond? This is a little surprise. There's a lot, of, a lot of twists and turns in this story. I would have thought Jesus would have said, come right in. Come on, follow me. That's what he said to so many people. That's what he'd said to his disciples and even others who weren't his disciples. He'd invited them to follow. I would have expected Jesus to say, get in the boat. And he didn't. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's what it looked like for this man to follow Jesus. We're all on a different journey. We all have a different story. God leads us and guides us in different ways. And so for this man understanding that he had been saved by Jesus, that he wanted to give his life to Jesus, the response he got was, go home and tell your story. Go and tell people what has happened to you. Go and tell people how the Lord has had mercy on you. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus has saved you, have you heard this call? Have you understood the tremendous privilege that you have as a recipient of the salvation of Jesus, of the mercy of God? Have you understood that now the sensible thing to do is to tell other people what God has done in you? I couldn't think of a better place in the Bible to illustrate this lesson of telling our story. Saved people should tell their story. Let me, let me note here in brackets, it's the story of what Jesus has done. It's not the story of what you have done. It's not the story of how clever you are to have discovered this religious truth. It's the story of a rescue. It's the story of a sinner who was lost, who was in danger of God's judgment. A sinner who was rescued by a God who reached out took a hold of you, opened your eyes, showed you your need of salvation. Do you know that this idea of telling others what God has done is, is from one end of the Bible to the, to, the, to the other? We see it often in the Old Testament. We talked about the nation of Israel. And in the book of Psalms, the hymn book of the nation of Israel, their songs of praise and worship, we see this concept many times. Psalm chapter 9, verse 1. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. And this is amazing too, because it's, it's always directed towards the nations. Proclaim among the nations. See, the Jewish people ended up being very nationalistic. 
And even after Jesus had come, died, and been resurrected, and gone back to heaven, he had taught his disciples, you're going to go into all the world, you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and then you're going to go to Samaria, and then you go to, you're going to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples and tell people the good news. And they didn't do it. Do you know what it took Peter to get him to go a few miles to talk to a non-Jewish man named Cornelius? He had to have a trance. He had to have a vision from God because he was so nationalistic. He was so closed in to thinking that, no, no, salvation is just for us. It's just for us Jewish people. And God had to use miraculous means to open his eyes to do exactly what he'd been singing his whole life, to proclaim to the nations what God has done. Psalm 78, we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. Psalm 108, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. And this is what, this is what it is. This is, this is what sharing the good news is. We, we, we get all technical about this. How do I tell someone about Jesus? Well, you know what? It, it, at very essence, all it is is we praise God to the people in our lives. We just tell them how, I mean, how many of us have bought a Keurig because someone told us how good theirs was? How many of us have bought a Toyota because someone praised it up to us and we gotta have it? And this is what evangelism is, is we share the good news. We're just praising God in front of our boss and our coworkers and our mom and our child. We just can't stop talking good of God and of Jesus and of what he's done. That's what evangelism is. Psalm 118, I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. Isaiah 63, I love this one. I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he's to be praised according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he's done for Israel according to his compassion and many kindnesses. And in the New Testament, when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses He's, he's just asking us to do exactly what was written in the Old Testament. Would you just tell people how good God is, how merciful he is? Would you tell him how wonderful, tell people how wonderful his salvation is? And Peter wrote of this in his letter. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. This harkens back to Old Testament language, speaking of the Jewish people, now speaking to anyone who is a follower of Jesus. You're a holy nation. You're God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's referring to evangelism. It's referring to us sharing the good news with the world by praising the God who saved us and wants to save them. Tell your story. Some of you are sitting here thinking, well, my story's not that great. I mean, I love to hear stories of drug dealers who come to Jesus, but boy, I, I don't have a good testimony. That's ridiculous. Praise God, if he spared your life from some of the things that others of us have had to endure because of sinful choices, sinful uh, influences in our life. Tell your story. Here's a challenge that I want to I want to lay out for us as a church today. When when people come and say I want to get baptized, one of the first things we say is, okay, we we want to we want to hear your story. We want you to write out your testimony. The writing of the testimony helps us understand that this person understands what salvation is. So we understand that. But it also helps to prepare us 
as believers to take that story, not just to the baptism tank, we take it to work, we take it to school, we tell people what God has done in our lives. When's the last time you wrote out your testimony? I want to put this challenge out to each of us. I would like everyone who's part of this church family, if you haven't done this in a while or if you've never done it, would you write out your testimony? I want you to do this. Let me show you some elements that I think we should include in our testimony. And we can send these out later if uh, some of you can't jot these down now, but take a picture of the screen if you want. Elements of your story. You write out your testimony. Here's some things that I think you should include. What's your backstory? Where did you come from? Usually when people share their testimony, they'll often talk about their upbringing, their family of origin, some of the challenges that might have come with that, some of the blessings. But what's your backstory? Secondly, how did God get your attention? How did you turn from being the person who has no interest in God or in Jesus, and now you've turned and you're looking at the cross? How did God get your attention? What means did he use to do that? Number three, how were you introduced to Jesus? How did you hear about him? Was it a Gideon Bible in a hotel room? I've heard that story. More often, it was a friend, a coworker, someone you knew who was a follower of Jesus, and you saw something in their life, or they began to tell you about Jesus. Number four, why did you surrender your life to him? Or why did you come to him? Why, why, why did you choose to, to place your faith, to repent and place your faith in him? And then number five, how has Jesus changed your life? Now here's the reality for some of us who uh, are followers of Jesus. We have not progressed. And, and one of the reasons that we feel we have no testimony is because we've come to the cross and then we've stalled. And rather than seeing the supernatural evidence of Jesus who's risen and alive in our, in our hearts and seeing the power of what he can do when we obey him and surrender to him and trust him and seeing the transformation that he intends to bring to us, we, we don't see those things because we are spiritually stalled. But when we begin to see those things, we've got something to share with the people around us. Write your testimony. I want to hear it. I, I want to hear I, Here's what I'd love. I would love, church has a YouTube channel. I would love to have countless of us on video share our story. It might be three minutes, might be five minutes. Some of you might be 30 minutes. doesn't matter. And we'll record it. And it's an opportunity for you to get your story out on the World Wide Web. And maybe there's someone at work who's kind of interested in what you're living and what you're sharing. And you can say, you know what? Um, my church has my story on video. You could watch it right now. Well, not during work hours. Later. I want that. Stories are powerful. Stories change lives. And we want to see more changed lives as we tell the story of how God has changed our lives. Let's sing, and then Andreas is going to come and close.